Who can tell me what happened on the 16th of November last year? Think about our theme. Someone got married, probably. An engagement. (laughs) It was 11.45 on the 16th of November 2010 when a spokesperson for Clarence House announced that Prince William is to marry Kate Middleton uh, in 2011. The UK public are a little divided about the razzmatazz surrounding the wedding. There are some who can't get enough of it. People like David Cameron, who apparently slept out on Pall Mall the night before Prince Charles married Lady Di. One of my son Matthew's colleagues at work was delighted when she heard it was going to be a public holiday because she'd already decided she was going to be there, uh, whatever happened. <coughs> Twitter was abuzz with comments. Some were less than positive about the royal family, expressing the usual resentment about the amount of money we spend on them. Uh, One tweet reported on the BBC criticised William's antics, using helicopters to fly himself to Kate's parents' home. It concluded, these people corrupt everything, and everyone they touch, this country deserves better. Of course, fashion lovers are speculating what Kate will wear. One of the first off the mark was Peter Hunt, or Petter Hunt, fashion director at You and Your Wedding magazine. She predicted Kate will wear a demure, high-necked, hand-embroidered, lace-couture gown. The venue was discussed as well. On the day of the announcement, BBC royal correspondent Peter Hunt said, it won't be any old back alley. Like it or not, the royal wedding will attract huge publicity. It will inevitably be a wonderful spectacle, followed by a sumptuous meal for those lucky enough to be invited. Hello magazine would give its right arm, if a magazine can have a right arm, to gain exclusive photographs of the day. The cynical royal reporter in The Independent speculated this week that Prince Charles might push for a very green wedding and expect all the guests to arrive in electric cars. But I doubt even Charles would go that far. Because royal weddings are expected to be, and always will be, glorious and spectacular. And that's exactly what the psalmist has in mind in Psalm 45. He tells us about the venue. It's the palace of a king. He tells us about the bride's dress. It's a gown interwoven with gold. We even hear about what the groom was wearing. Fragrant robes and a sword by his side. And we know something about the music too, stringed instruments to make us glad. Now this psalm was probably written for King Solomon on the occasion of his wedding to an Egyptian princess. We don't know that for sure, but it's not important. John Goldingay, Old Testament scholar, suggests it might well have been used on a regular basis, either at annual celebrations um, of the king's birthday or a wedding anniversary, And at very least, every time an Israelite king got married, whatever the detail, it was quite an occasion. And like royal watchers will be on April the 29th of this year, the psalmist gets quite excited. Look at verse 1. My heart is stirred by a noble theme as I recite my verses for the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. 
Eugene Peterson in the message translates it like this. My heart bursts its banks, spilling beauty and goodness. I pour it out in a poem for the king, shaping the river into words. So firstly, the king's wedding. Now it's worth pointing out at the outset that Israel's desire for a king arose from a rebellious attitude towards God. The people of Israel weren't content to have God as their king. They wanted a human king, just like everyone else, despite God's warning of what kings would require of them. But God allows them to have their way, and then remarkably, he uses this very desire to fulfil his own purposes through the institution of kingship. And in this psalm, the writer pours out a mixture of praise for what is perhaps an idealistic view of the king that he sees before him and his prayer that the king might become the godly king that he should be. And in the midst of his prayer and praise, he makes prophetic statements, divine promises, if you like, about the eternal nature of God's throne and God's king. The psalmist breaks it into three sections. He addresses, first of all, the king, verses 1 to 9, then the bride, verses 10 to 15, and then the king again in verses 16 and 17. And those themes of prayer and praise and promise are kind of woven into those three sections. And so we're going to have a look at what the psalmist has to say under those three themes. Firstly, praise. The writer begins with a hearty commendation of the king in verse 2. You are the most excellent of men, he says. Literal translations speak more of the physical attractions of the king. You are the handsomest of men, says the English Standard Version. And this would accord well with the view at that time that the king would be good-looking as well as of good character. And if this king is Solomon, then similar good looks are found in his father David and his half-brother Absalom. But again, we must remember that it was at the point um, that David came on the scene that we are warned that God doesn't look on the outward appearance, but on the heart. And worth noting that when Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the Messiah, in chapter 53 of his prophecy, he tells us the servant king will have no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So the NIV translation of excellence therefore is focusing, rightly or wrongly, on those more important qualities of gracious speech, verse 2, of a love of righteousness and a hatred of wickedness, in verse 7. But when it comes to the practicalities of the wedding day, the king's worthy of the very best. We read of the fragrant clothing of the king, verse 8, the splendour of his ivory Decorated palaces, verse 8, the wealth and glory and splendid clothing of his bride, in verses 13 and 14. So the king is much praised, but at the same time there is a sense in which the psalmist is also expressing his desire of what the king will be. It's, It's almost like his prayer that the king will be the man he should be. So, secondly, prayer. In verse 4, he sets out his desire for the king to triumph. To triumph in promoting truth, humility and righteousness. 
These are values not often found in election manifestos, but they're essential for the king to fight for. All his power and energy should be expended on these things. The prayer continues in verse 5 with a longing that the king be victorious over his enemies. Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. And the psalmist's prayer extends to the king's bride. Uh, Verse 10. Listen, O daughter, consider and give ear. Forget your people and your father's house. The king is enthralled by your beauty. Honour him, for he is your Lord. The psalmist here is urging the royal bride to draw a line, a clear line between uh, her family of, that she's grown up in and the new family to which she's belong. He wants her to leave behind the allegiances and the priorities of her birth family uh, and to make a new family. And this isn't just a chauvinistic idea tied to a patriarchal society because the king's urged to do the same in verse 16 your sons will take the place of your fathers. The king too should have a new orientation to the future, to think about being a parent, about his descendants, about his family, not his father's and the older generation. So husband and wife, we're told, the the psalmist wants the king and his bride to make each other their first priority, together to make their own family with their own values. And if I understand verse 9 correctly, there's the the idea of the bride ruling with the king. Verse 9, Daughters of kings are among your honoured women. At your right hand is the royal bride in the gold of Ophir. This idea of being at his right hand, of being co-regent, sharing in his rule, just as Eve shared with Adam in ruling over the created order back in Genesis. So when verse 11 recommends to the bride that she honour her husband, I mean, literally is this bowing down to the king. We must put it in that context. There is an order in marriage, but it's not a demeaning one. The king, the husband, is to be first among equals. If you like, as Captain Andrew Strauss is amongst England's victorious England cricketers. And for Solomon's bride, there will be great blessing if she lives this way. Look at verse 12. The daughter of Tyre, that probably means the peoples, the peoples of Tyre, will come with a gift. Men of wealth will seek your favour. Millionaires will come seeking her favour. So the psalmist praises king and bride. He prays that they might both exercise their roles in a godly fashion. And then thirdly, he prophesies or promises great things for the king and the queen. We've seen a bit of that promise in verse 12. And then verse 16 contains a promise of sons to carry on the name uh, into the future. But in verses 6 and 17, we find some surprising comments. Verse 6, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. And then verse uh, 17, I'll perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. So in verse 6 there, the, the king is addressed as God. 
For a culture with such a high view of the one creator God, these are puzzling words. Some commentators even suggest changing the text so it doesn't say what it actually says. But I'm told the Hebrew is plain enough. And there are other scriptures uh, in which the word God is legitimately used to refer to others than God himself. So, to quote Michael Wilcock, to speak of God's viceroy who occupies God's throne in God's city and represents God's rule is not quite so startling as it may seem at first. But there is more to it than meets the eye. And indeed there is. The psalm is much more than a wedding psalm for an Israelite king. It's a picture of a divine wedding to come. Which brings me secondly to the divine wedding. The psalmist wrote better than he knew. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. You know, the, the, the writer to the Hebrews uses these very words about his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of kings and we, the church, are his bride. The whole New Testament pictures Christ's relationship with his church as like a marriage between a man and a woman. And Jesus spoke often of the great wedding feast to which his disciples are invited. So what are we to learn from these verses about being married to God, about being the bride of Christ? Well, first of all, let's be clear, human kings and marriages fail. Israel's kings, of course, never lived up to either the praise or the prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 45. Even the best of them, Solomon, fell far short of this ideal. And for centuries after the exile, it looked as if God's promise had also failed. And that's our experience today. Our leaders, whether in government or in the church, let us down. Not everyone has a positive experience of marriage. Not everyone who wants to gets married. Some marriages are childless, even when there's a desire for children. If we think that we can depend fully on human beings and human institutions for ultimate joy and satisfaction, we're setting ourselves up for a fall. We will always be disappointed. The Bible leads us to expect exactly that. Because our world And all its institutions, every individual, is flawed by human sin. Relationships at best will fail to ultimately satisfy satisfy us, and at worst will cause us great pain and distress. And the hunger and the longing that such failed relationships um, create in us are meant to lead us to the one who will perfectly satisfy us who will perfectly fulfil those longings. The perfect king of whom the psalmist here unwittingly is pointing. So secondly, God's king, marriage, will last forever. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And then verse 17, I'll perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore the nations will praise you forever and ever. As the writer to the Hebrews makes very clear, these verses ultimately point to God's own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only one 
who can perfectly satisfy our deepest longings. He is the only one who warrants the psalmist's praise here. It doesn't make sense if it's of a human king. It only makes sense when spoken of Christ. The nations will truly praise him forever and ever. So how are we to enjoy him? What will it involve being the bride of Christ, married to God? Well, verses 10 to 12 give us some clues. If Solomon's bride was indeed a princess of Egypt, she would have had to leave behind her her old religion with all its practices and influence on her life. And so it is with someone uniting with Christ the King. We now belong exclusively to him, so there are things that will have to be left behind. Being married to Christ is about changing one's allegiance from the values of the kingdom of this world, the one into which we were born, into the values of the kingdom of God. This week, Catherine and I watched The Sinking of the Lacunia. I don't know whether you saw it. A true story from World War II. In it, a German woman effectively changes her allegiance from Germany to Britain because of her disillusionment with the Third Reich. Hilda Smith had a British father, which made the process easier, but in doing so, she burned her German passport. She adopted the English language. She took the side of the British in the war effort. And right at the end, when she has a choice to escape to safety in a German U-boat by claiming her rights as a German citizen, or to be set adrift in the Atlantic with the Brits with little hope of survival 600 miles from the African coast, she chooses to identify herself with the British and go in a lifeboat, probably heading for death. That's what it looked like. See, that's what it means to be married to God. We identify fully with the values um, of God, with his people, whatever the cost. We belong to him, our allegiance is to him, and we honour him in all things. So the old ways must go. Our money is to become his. Our time is to become his. Our priorities are to become his. Our ambitions are to become his. We're no longer to live for ourselves, but for him. In the words of verse 11, we are to honour him because he is our Lord. So being married to God means leaving behind the old way of life, but it also means adopting a new way of life. A way of life that involves sharing in the king's rule. So thirdly, the king's bride shares in his rule. We saw a bit of that looking at Solomon and his bride. The bride is at the right, the king's right hand. A place of authority, of influence, of honour. She will share with him in his reign. And the New Testament picks up the idea in several places, spelling out that God's church, his bride, will reign with him forever. And as we saw earlier, it's not a new idea. Adam and Eve were meant to rule over all the earth from the beginning, but their sin caused that to get messed up. But now, at the right hand of the king, as his bride, we will share with him in his rule. He gives us a part to play. Of course, we do it on his terms, in his way. He expects us to emulate his character, to be those who pursue truth, humility and righteousness. And we're to do it in a way that seeks his honour and glory among the nations, verse 5. 
Let your sharp arrows pierce the hearts of the king's enemies. Let the nations fall beneath your feet. We are to proclaim the honour and glory of the king uh, into the world, to our family, our neighbours, our colleagues and to the ends of the earth. Our ambitions should be about his glory, about making his name known, not ours. And then picking up some thoughts from some of last year's uh, sermons. We must consider our role as stewards of God's earth. We should take our place in ruling our nation through involvement in the democratic process. We should find ways of expressing concern for and praying for the persecuted church. I could go on. There are any number of ways in which we express our desire for the honour and glory of the king and, uh, and to share his rule in making his name known. But living this out, making God's agenda our own, living faithfully him, for him in every context, it's quite a challenge. Uh, it can be costly. But I want to end this morning by spelling out that any cost is worth paying because God's king is worth honouring. The one to whom God's people are married is the perfect king. So here it is then. There is a perfect marriage. The marriage of our dreams. It's marriage to God's king the Lord Jesus Christ. To quote the psalmist, he is the most excellent of men. Of course, he's more than that. He's the most excellent of men. His lips drip with grace, we're told. And that's what the soldier said of Jesus. No one speaks like this man. He successfully pursues truth, humility and righteousness. His hand displays awesome deeds. Those who oppose him will fall beneath his feet. There are none who can stand up to him. He is a man of justice, a lover of all that is good. And most important of all, verse 11, he's enthralled with the beauty of his bride. It's true, he loves us. And he longs for us to be made perfect for that wedding day. In the New Testament, we find Paul in Ephesians telling husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He showed the extent of his love by dying on the cross for us in order to make us perfect. As Rico Tice so often says, we're more wicked than we could ever imagine and more loved than we could ever dream of. And Paul goes on to tell us the reason Christ died was so that he could make us perfect. He could make us a bride without wrinkle or blemish. An Iranian friend of ours told us that on her wedding day she spent five hours at the beautician being prepared for the wedding. Judging by the photos, the beautician, beautician did rather a good job. She is attractive at the best of times, but in the wedding photos it's real film star stuff. No sign of a flaw. Stunningly beautiful. Jesus died so that you and I may be made flawless on our wedding day. Not just physically, although we will have new bodies. So maybe we will be perfect in that same sense. But perfect in character. 
His death deals with the punishment that our sin deserves. So we're no longer condemned. We can turn up on that wedding day with a completely clear conscience. But more than that, his death deals with the power of sin. We no longer need to sin. We have the power not to, and the love of Christ that Christ has for us is now the best reason of all not to sin. In relationship with him, we have something far, far better. That inner motivation. But more than that, we will share his glory. The promise made in verse 6 can equally be claimed by his bride. Like him, we too will be anointed with the oil of joy, verse 7. There is a joy in walking with Christ that's second to none. That joy is often linked with the spread of the gospel, with God bringing many sons to glory. Look at verses 16 and 17. Your sons will take the place of your fathers. You will make them princes throughout the land. I will perpetuate your memory through all generations. Therefore, the nations will praise you forever and ever. In marriage to God's king, we are promised fruitfulness. People of every tribe, nation, language coming to share in this wedding feast and the joy that goes with it. C.G. Studd, the 19th century aristocrat and England cricketer who gave away his fortune uh, and then became a missionary, he spoke of the joy of leading the first friend to Christ. He said, I've tasted almost all the pleasures that this world can give. Given his privileged upbringing and successful cricket career, they were many. But those pleasures were as nothing compared to the joy that the leading of that one soul to the Lord gave me. The joy of being part, being partners with God, being married to God and sharing in this fruitfulness of bringing many sons to glory. I remember talking with someone I knew in a previous church. I'm not sure where he stood spiritually. He was a solicitor and he was amazed to discover that I'd been one too and had given it up to become a missionary. That's what I'm afraid of, he said. I'm afraid God might ask me to do the same. Well, it's true that perhaps from his side of the fence it seemed a daunting prospect being asked to leave the security of a well-paid job to embark into a completely unknown and apparently insecure future. I felt a bit like that at that point of making the step. But I've discovered that God is no man's debtor. For 27 years, Catherine and I have been dependent on God and his people for our income and not once have we been in need. We've always had a roof over our head, we've had clothes to wear, food to eat, we've had a car to drive, we've had holidays to enjoy. God has never let us down. Because we're married to him. He is our husband. He loves us and he will provide for us. God may be calling some of you here to step out in a similar way to give your life to crossing cultures with the gospel or to be a pastor here in the UK. But God calls most of us to remain where we are and to live a Christ-like lifestyle in our jobs, in our neighbourhoods, in our families. And that can be a great challenge too. To refuse to engage in those slightly dodgy dealings at work 
to refuse to engage in gossip with neighbours, to give time to a colleague in need when we've got our own deadline to meet, to devote ourselves to an elderly or sick relative. These are all tough challenges. And no less difficult than the person who leaves everything to go overseas. But again, God will not let us down. If we put him first, he will honour us. And he will honour every effort to make him known, to bring his glory to the world. We have a single friend staying with us at the moment. For many years she was a Sunday school teacher. And she was celebrating with us on Friday night how many of the youngsters that she taught over the years are now serving God with responsibilities in local churches all over the country. She delights in them as if they were her own children. That is the joy God's given her in serving him, in putting him first. Weddings are joyful occasions. Marriage to the Lamb is no different, but is on an altogether grander scale. Because we can have every confidence that the King of Kings to whom we're betrothed will never let us down. He loves us with an everlasting love. And in his presence, there is fullness of joy. So, in conclusion, every time you hear reference to William and Kate, think of your marriage to God. Think of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Think of all the wonderful new family you have in the church. Think about the perfect bridegroom who gave himself up for you. And remember Paul's words in Romans 8, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave himself up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? So think about these things. Rejoice that the king has come and that he's preparing his bride for his wedding day. And think about those wedding vows all his promises to us that he will keep perfectly. The psalmist tells us his heart is bursting to tell us about the king. This king has come once to die for us and he's coming again to take us to the wedding feast and to an eternity in perfect harmony with him, married to God.